to another episode before I dive in to my conversation with Paul I just wanted to take a minute to talk about this past week because it has been absolutely insane if you were able to check out um, my recent post and just read the news <laughs> um, yeah it's definitely been a week here in Texas and I um I'm still kind of processing it all because I'm still without water or heat so um it's not fully you know even over I guess is in the word but at the same time I'm incredibly blessed to be um, back in my apartment with electricity and Wi-Fi, obviously recording this episode right now on Sunday, um, or at least this intro. And I think this whole experience has just made me recognize my privilege even further because having the ability to even, you know, stay in a hotel when other people were searching for firewood to literally keep themselves warm, sleeping in cars, um, unfortunately even dying because of the carbon monoxide poisoning, um, due to sleeping in cars and just, it's, yeah, it's been really bad. And, you know, if, if you have money to spare, I really, really, really advise and recommend donating to, um, Austin Mutual Aid, Austin Mutual Aid of Hotels, because the hospitality industry just went above and beyond this week and worked tirelessly day in and day out to accommodate not only the people who were visiting and stuck here, but also local residents and, um, just give out free food. Like really it, the sense of community here has just been so, like just so wonderful and reassuring um in the sense that I feel like my faith in humanity has been a little bit restored this week um but yeah there's mutual aid Houston feed the people Dallas there's tons of places to donate and I just I really hope that people take less take a moment to read about what happened in Texas um and educate themselves because I honestly had no idea about the politics behind all this and I'm not going to, you know, go on a political rant, but it just made me realize that I, I should know more about the state that I'm living into, um, and kind of what their policies are. But I just wanted to thank everyone, um, who has reached out and to check in on me and who has expressed their support. Um, it really means a lot. And yeah, I just, my advice or I guess like a way to support would just be to, you know, really show up for, those who are less fortunate, um, the homeless population in Austin is just devastating. And I, it really breaks my heart to imagine what they are going through this week. And, um, you know, as with every catastrophe, there's going to be a lot of mental health repercussions after this. I mean, just the sound of alarms going off because everything, all the alarms went off for 
days because with the electrophysiologist, like that stuff sticks in your mind and can be really triggering. And um, yeah, I think a lot of people are going to have to have a lot of uh, PTSD from all of this. So um, I'm just continuing to work with my company and um, others to make sure that everyone who is suffering mentally, physically, just financially um, gets the aid that they uh, need. So yeah, that's just my little talking point. Um, before I jump into this episode with Paul, I'm excited. <laughs> this is it's funny or weird transitioning from, you know, a natural disaster in Texas to um, psilocybin mushrooms <laughs> as a way to restore your mental health. But hopefully this episode is, you know, the, a good listening thing to get off, to get your mind off of, um, some of the craziness that has happened this week. It definitely has been fun to re-listen to and be like, oh yeah, <laughs> this is cool. So um, Paul's awesome. Uh, shout out Jacqueline for connecting us. Um, and I was lucky enough to even meet him um, over New Year's. So yeah, again, really excited to share this episode and make sure to check out Paul's amazing art. So I will put all that information in the bio, but... Without further ado, here is Paul Seelai. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Sauls in the City. Today, I am so excited to be here with Paul Seelai, who is a professor of neuroscience and psychology at Duke University, as well as a member of the board of directors for the Center of Psychedelic Research at the University of Toronto. Thanks for being here, Paul. Yeah, thanks for having me. So why don't you start out by just telling me a little about yourself? Where are you from? How old are you? Where'd you grow up? What's your story? Yeah, so I'm 38. I'm from uh, Pickering, Ontario, which is about a 30 minute drive east of uh, Toronto. Um, I am, as, as you noted, a psychology and neuroscience professor at Duke University. Um, primarily have been studying attention um, and creativity, but more recently have gotten into research on psychedelics um, based on some of my own experiences and um, essentially wanting to figure out whether, whether we can use them functionally to, to benefit people, to increase creativity and to help with clinical conditions. Awesome. So kind of going back, what got you interested in psychology to begin with? Was it like your own history, personal experience, um, yeah. specific aspects? Yeah, so, I mean, interestingly, psychedelics uh, to a large extent, I would say. So um, I did well in high school. And then in the last year of high school, um, so in Canada, we used to have grade 13, which was if you were on university track, uh, you had to do that. And I just flunked a couple of courses. I went, through, I had major depression. And um, essentially uh, lost my chance to go to university. And so then I started working odd jobs, uh, mostly labor-based jobs. Um, I, I boarded and taped drywall. I worked at a lumber yard. Um, and then funnily enough, the, the job that I most loved was the lowest paying of all of them, but actually is the, the origin for all of this, um, was at a Shell gas station. I worked in a, as a car wash attendant. And... Um, and at this time, I was um, surrounded by a group of people who were experimenting with psychedelics, lots of artsy types. I was playing in a band. 
one of them was a painter. Um, I just found them all to be quite fascinating people. And um, in my early 20s, had my first psychedelic experience um, with psilocybin mushrooms. And I, I was just fascinated by consciousness after that experience um, and, and by how um, limited it had seemed prior to that experience and how much there was left unknown, essentially. And so I started to, while at the car wash, read books on psychology and philosophy. And uh, my parents eventually encouraged me to uh, apply for undergrad um, at a local university uh, as a senior a mature student where now it didn't matter that I had flunked a couple courses in grade 13. Now as a mature 24 year old, I could go. Uh, I, among other things, took psychology and philosophy courses, fell in love with them further. And uh, yeah, the rest is history. I just pursued that and ended up doing a master's and PhD um, in Canada um, in, in psychology. And then a postdoc at Harvard, um, again, psychology and neuroscience. And then now I've been at Duke, I guess, for three years um, as a professor of psychology and neuroscience. Wow. That's such a like incredible way to just discover something you're passionate about and then make it like literally all the way to teaching others about what you're passionate about. Totally. I'm, I'm just curious because I don't know much about Canadian the Canadian school system. Is it like Europe where you have to decide what you want to do like before entering college, like apply for a certain, you know, to be an engineer, so to speak. Right. Um, so, I mean, now I'm not sure because this was, yeah, as I said, I'm 38 and I, this was, you know, when I was in high school, 18 at 18, you know, 20 years ago, things may have changed. For example, they don't have grade 13 anymore, but at least when I was in high school, you didn't know, for example, that you had to be an engineer. Um, but, but instead what you would do is take a number of electives or courses, uh, first year and then sort of declare your major second year or or later on when you when you finally figured out after sort of sampling different courses and seeing what fits best with you. So it's kind of more in line with the United States, or at least like my experience. It is. The only difference, I suppose, is that in Canada, we make a pretty strong distinction between college and university, where college um, is generally focused on um, labor work, uh, if you want to be a mechanic, for example, whereas university is more uh, thinking, I suppose, and, and the standard academic uh, pursuit like science and mathematics and whatnot got it yeah so you mentioned that when you were you know in grade 13 or um, afterwards you dealt with depression was that something that at the time you noticed you were going through it or is it more of a like oh now that I you know looking back you're like oh at that time I was majorly depressed no, it was, yeah, it was quite apparent. Um, what happened was I had mild acne um, in, in my late teens and um, tried some medication that didn't really seem to work. And, you know, I, I don't think anybody's overly thrilled to have acne, but it wasn't the end of the world for me. But nonetheless, you know, if you could make it go away, then that's a great thing. So, um, so I had chatted with the doctor about trying a different drug called Accutane, um, which for, for some small proportion of people, uh, elicits a sort of major depression, suicidal ideation. Um, I was, yeah, I was sort of a recluse. I would, you know, I would go to school and then I would come home and go in my bedroom and, you know, cry for a, a year or two. Um, so, so yeah, it was quite apparent. I mean, also this is, this is why in the last year of high school, I flunked a couple of courses. I was just majorly depressed and, 
um, had suicidal thoughts and, you know, wasn't, wasn't in a good place. Wow. I did not know that was a side effect. I thought it just like made you really like overly exposed to the sun and get a lot of sunburns, but that's peeling lips. Uh, I now have sweaty palms as a consequence, lots of other fun side effects, but that was definitely the least fun of all of them. Um, I, now I don't know. I mean, there was, this was never, you know, a clinical trial or anything. It was all self-experimentation, but, um, my depression largely went away after after my first psychedelic experience with, with psilocybin mushrooms. And there is research suggesting that they're that, that they can be quite beneficial for alleviating depression, anxiety, and a host of other things. Um, I, we can get into this if you'd like. Um, and I think it's important to for anybody who's who's curious about exploring psychedelics is that um, I was somewhat of an amateur at the time uh, and and didn't fully consider important things like mindset uh, and, and the environment this is commonly talked in the psychedelics lingo in terms of set and setting and making sure that those are right. Um, and so I, I have had some, some trips, the most recent one in my mid twenties where, um, you know, I had my first panic attack ever while tripping. And so I dealt with some anxiety consequently um, though, as I said, it, it really did alleviate my depression. And uh, beyond that, I mean, the, the anxiety that I have suffered as a consequence of it. I don't, I don't blame the, the drug for it. I don't have any regrets. Um, it's just, uh, I, as I said, I was, I was an amateur with it. And so that's part of my line of research or what I'd like to do is, is look at the extent to which understanding the importance of set and setting guides a trip either for better or worse um, and informing people about the importance of it so that you can actually get the most out of, out of these compounds. Yeah, definitely. And I will surely be asking questions about that um, a little bit down um, the road. But before I get to that, I'm curious because you did so many other things prior to, I, at least I believe prior to at least, you know, beginning at Duke. What was your concentration um, in as like an undergrad or at least when you're getting your master's and then PhD was any of that related to psychedelics or was the, were those all different topics? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, you'll be hard pressed to find courses in psychedelics. Um, yeah. um, there are some, there are some faculty, um, who will at least have a one-off lecture or a few lectures. I don't know if there are any, maybe, um, Robin Harris, um, he's at Imperial college London. He may teach a course. If anybody were to, it would be him, but, I didn't have that luxury, um, but nonetheless, you know, on my own time uh, outside of school, I, you know, would read *The Doors of Perception*, uh, one of my favorite books, and in fact, my lab at Duke is is named after a concept from *The Doors of Perception*, which is, for those who don't know, um, Aldous Huxley took mescaline and uh, documented his trip essentially in the book, um, and yeah, other other books, um, *Breaking Open the Head* by Daniel Pinchbeck, um, where I would sort of. I would get information not through the academic system, but through books and recommendations from friends and, and colleagues who are interested in psychedelics. Got it. And then what led you to becoming on the board of, let me make sure I have this correct again, the, this, uh, the board of directors of the Center of Psychedelic Research at uh, University of Toronto. And how does one do that? How does one become on the board of directors? Yeah, so it's actually um, Thomas Anderson. He's a uh, just finishing up his PhD there at University of Toronto. Um, he and I have done a lot of overlapping research in terms of our work on daydreaming and mind wandering. 
And um, he shot me an email a couple years ago inquiring about potentially joining my lab as a, as a postdoc. So once he got his PhD, um, the, the idea is that he would come to Duke potentially with me and work for two years or more um, on a bunch of research. And so over the Christmas holidays, when I typically um, visit home, although I didn't uh, because of COVID this year, which was unfortunate, but uh, typically I go home and, and he and I met and we had we grabbed some food and, and some drinks and we were chatting about the prospect of him working with me. Um, and it came to light, I forget exactly how, that you know he's got this interest in psychedelics and I shared with him my stories. And um, he told me that he had created the Center for Psychedelics Research and was curious as to whether I'd be interested in um, being on the board of directors to help with, you know, um, talking about study designs and su um, suggesting study ideas and and uh, helping with data analysis or, or whatever they would need help with. And given my passion for psychedelics and science more generally, um, I thought it would be a great fit for me. And so you know, that's how it came about. Awesome. So one thing I, I find particularly interesting about psych psychedelics specifically in the context of, you know, it, how it can treat mental illness, how it can be used for good, basically, or like, I don't know, how, to, how it can be used outside of just like recreational. It's almost like a psychedelic renaissance because there's so much history behind, you know, taking substances, like natural substances to get to that like out of body experience. So I was wondering if you could touch on some history and like the basically how it was used in other cultures in the past or just anything that you know um that you could share with my listeners yeah so i mean i'm admittedly not super well versed in, in the, the history of it i mean enough that might be of interest to people and also um at some point um if, if we can circle back to it the out-of-body experience and whatnot um i also do research on lucid dreaming um and other altered states of consciousness that I don't require uh, consuming drugs or taking drugs of any sort, uh, just because of the fascination with that. So I think it's interesting for people who are, you know, unwilling to try psychedelics, but nevertheless want to have an altered state uh, to talk about these things. Definitely. In any case, uh, yeah, as for the history, um, I actually, with ayahuasca, which is um, a brew uh, made, I believe it's from a, a part of a vine and um, a bush of some sort. Um, and it's blended up into a brew and, and you can do um, retreats in Costa Rica and whatnot where you'll have a shaman or a group of shaman who will uh, guide you through an experience. Um, and it's, it's a very strong hallucinogen um, with DMT, uh, dimethyltryptamine as its, as its active, psychoactive uh, compound. And um, it's, been, it's become popular more recently and, and people can actually go on trips um, and, and have these guides take them through these trips. And I've got some friends who have told me about them. And, um, and, and ideally what you get out of it is, is a spiritual experience and some sort of healing. And I don't mean this in a hippy dippy sort of way. Again, I'm a scientist, but um, having some sort of profound meaning in, in your life as a consequence of this. And, and so it had been speculated that ayahuasca has been used for, for ages in ceremonies, but I just recently read a Wired article um, suggesting that, that maybe that's not the case. Um, so ayahuasca is sort of an outlier here, but um, like, and I know most about psilocybin mushrooms, um, they, they've got a, a huge history. I mean, um, I don't know how many hundreds of years or even more than that they date back, but, um, you know, the Aztecs, 
uh, in Mexico have used uh, psilocybin in ceremonies and rituals for, for ages. Um, people in South America uh, have done the same. Um, but yeah, again, it, it really depends on the, on the drug type, I suppose. LSD wasn't invented by Albert Hoffman until the 1900s. So obviously there's, there's only so much of a history there. But So it really is drug specific, I suppose. But psilocybin definitely, um, the mushroom has been used uh, for, for a long, long period of time. I didn't know that about ayahuasca being, you know, maybe not going back as far because I think it's partially like media coverage that makes it seem like, ooh, go to Costa Rica and like live as the Aztecs did, but yeah, not necessarily true. Um, yeah. So I'm curious to talk a little bit more about your first experience using psychedelics and like, you know, it's what you said got you out of your depression at that time and sparked your interest in psychology and then putting that into the context of I just for I guess for a little bit of background information I've just like recently gotten really interested in um in Tim the Tim Ferriss show I'm not sure if you've listened at all to his podcast no no I'm not sure I think I think you'd like it but basically so he's really interested in psychedelics for like his own personal experience. I'm sorry, Tim Ferriss, if you're listening, he's not listening, but <laughs> in case I completely get this wrong, but he became interested because he had an experience where he took ayahuasca and it kind of unpacked a load of trauma or like traumatic memories of his childhood of in, including like sexual abuse as a child that prior to taking the substance, like he had locked away and didn't even remember. And then only once after kind of getting to that locked state of conscience or so, so to speak, did he remember them and like very vividly. And then afterwards was able to rec- like pinpoint the person who did it to him and the family and blah, blah, blah. So I'm curious, you know, when you were having your own experience, um, with a psychedelic substance, were you experienced more of these, like, as you kind of said, like lucid dreams and things that you had never, I guess, I don't know, encountered before, or were you tapping back into that history of any sort, whether good or bad? Yeah, for me, it wasn't, I, I haven't had the same sorts of experiences, although I've certainly heard of them before. Um, and it really is fascinating from, you know, Freud, um, one of the earlier psychologists um, with the psychoanalytic approach these days doesn't get much credit. Um, but I mean, there is something to be said, certainly about <clears throat> the subconscious mind. It's a hell of a thing to try to study because um, it's, it's hard to do science and get experimental and have controls when you're talking about something that is subconscious and beyond mm-hmm. the level of awareness. But nonetheless, um, yeah, lots of people have had these sorts of reports. And we do know from more rigorous scientific psychological studies that that there does seem to be this subconscious that can influence or incubate information when we're not trying, where you can have aha moments all of a sudden, even though you weren't working away actively on something. Um, and so the idea that you can use psychedelics as a tool to get at the subconscious is, is quite fascinating, I think, and, and, um, and would be very beneficial potentially for understanding past trauma and whatnot. My experience wasn't so much that, um, but I did the first time that I that I took psilocybin mushrooms have a mystical experience, um, and since had them numerous times. Um, so typically, a mystical experience. I mean, there are different definitions of it, but it's essentially 
um, a feeling of oneness or connectedness with everyone and everything. It's um, some people take it as um, being religious. I'm I'm an agnostic atheist. I'm not particularly re religious, though I was raised Catholic. But um, but I could certainly see why it's interpreted that way. And it's really just this euphoric melding. Um, it's it's the the dissolution of your ego or your mm -hmm. sense of self and just this connectedness with everything with nature and with everybody else and and it was an experience of, of pure love i mean words don't really do it justice to explain but of course we try our best I even i do paintings to try to capture it because words fail but um in any case that for me that was the first time i had, had tripped on psilocybin mushrooms i had this mystical experience and this connectedness and a new sense of meaning that I think really ended up helping with, with the depression. Um, yeah. 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 It's interesting that you said you use the term like disillusion of ego, because I've heard that <laughs> a lot, at least from like listening into uh, Tim Ferriss's show, but and talking with other people who do some similar research. So whether it be a disillusion of ego, that's preventing you from tapping back into those painful memories or just experiencing like a beautiful connectedness. Um, it seems like they're almost one and the same. So this kind of leads me to my next question, which is, you know, you mentioned a recent trip where you had an anxiety attack. Was that anxiety attack at all related to something, you know, tangible, so to speak? Like, could you point it back to something that was currently happening or had happened or was it just random? Yeah, I, I mean, maybe maybe neither of those things. Um, I, I couldn't, for example, like, I mean, um, most of my childhood was wonderful. And I, I and, and the parts that weren't, I don't I don't think have anything to do with with that sense of panic. Um, again, this is this is the importance of set and setting. Uh, so mindset and setting uh, being the environment you're in and making sure that you're in a good mindset, you're positive, you have good intentions. And also that you're in a good environment. If, for example, you know, you're in a cage with lions, even if you have the best of intentions, it's probably not going to be a good trip. Or, you know, more, uh, perhaps a more appropriate example, you know, if, if there are a bunch of police outside of your house, well, these drugs are illegal in most states, uh, yeah. probably not going to be a, a good trip. You're going to be thinking about that sort of stuff. And um, w with that trip, it was, I, I recall quite vividly, uh, and kick myself for it ever since. But um, I was I was at I was living with my parents still, and my oldest brother um, would regularly take psilocybin mushrooms with me, or semi regularly. We weren't doing it all the time, but um, we would we would trip together and go off into our respective rooms and get back together. And my folks were um, were leaving uh, on vacation somewhere, and so so my brother and I had planned to you know consume mushrooms. We didn't. My folks didn't know at the time. Uh, they they know now, and if they didn't, surprise. But no, they, <laughs> they certainly know now. Um, and what happened was, my brother, we, we weren't in the best mindset. We, there was no like depression or anything. We just weren't in great moods and weren't feeling it right. Like we just. But um, I had just resolved to, to take them because you know it's not every day that your parents go on vacation and we were all ready to roll. Uh, and so my brother wisely decided, because he wasn't in the right mindset, uh, to, to refrain from taking them. I nevertheless took them because I just built up, built it up so much in my mind. Um, and so even though the setting was was appropriate, I mean, I had my brother there uh, and I was at my house and felt comfortable. My mindset 
was was off. I wasn't in the right state of mind, and I I think I in a sense was um, it's it's almost like abusing them, I suppose, where I I, I was forcefully using them to uh, create, to be more creative and play music, and and it it just got I just got into a bad place where it didn't feel natural. It felt really forced, and as I said, I didn't have the right mindset, and so. I think that's what ended up leading to the, to the panic attack. Got it. And then did this lead you to pr- start doing research on the effect of um, setting and mindset? Yeah. So, I mean, this is all quite recent for me, the research on it. I mean, I've done my own uh, research on myself, uh, obviously, by having these experiences. And I've, I've you know, some, some of my collaborators uh, and I chat about this stuff quite regularly and read up on what little research has been done. Um, but yeah, I mean, to get, to get a job in academia, you kind of have to be an expert in a thing, a a particular topic. Psychedelics isn't the most popular thing. Uh, some people, I mean, there, there's a lot of stigma associated with it, although it's been, it's been better more recently. Um, but yeah, for, for all sorts of reasons, the the government trying to do mind control with, with psychedelics, MK ultra, Timothy Leary at Harvard, uh, starting a whole counterculture, essentially telling people to drop acid and drop out of school. Um, yeah, so it, it got a bad name. Um, um, and so as I was going through my master's and PhD, though I was always fascinated by the topic and always wanted to research it, it didn't strike me, it didn't strike me as the best idea, right? And it's tough to find people who would educate me in that way, whose mm-hmm. lab I could work in and do this research. So I, 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 being interested in altered states, started to study mind wandering. Uh, and and more recently dreaming right where again you can it's the same general idea is that we have these altered states of consciousness but um, they're not as frowned upon I suppose there's not, not as much of a stigma associated with them um, but now that I've got a job and I continue those lines of research now um, it's a bit safer for me to do podcasts like this and and do research and um, got an upcoming project in collaboration with um, a big center for psychedelics research in the States, uh, the acronym for which is MAPS, uh, M-A-P-S. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so we're going to do some some research there. But it's all, it's all really quite new. I mean, I've been jotting down ideas for at least a decade on, on research I'd like to do, but only more recently since I've got this position um, can I sort of afford to do this kind of research and apply for grants on the, so, so that I can do this research, yeah. Awesome. So I was hoping now you could talk a little bit more about what you did study in that, um, I I forget what you phrased it as, but getting to that altered state of conscience without using any form of psychedelics and lucid dreams. A, how do you do that? (laughs) And B, like, I guess if you could provide like a little bit more context and in what in what exactly you're studying and like what that disassociative reality reality looks like when you're in that state uh, so lucid dreaming presumably you're referring to yeah yeah and i think you uh, and what you mentioned bef- mentioned before about like i guess getting to a place where you from what it sounded like you could tap into that creativity you could yeah work on your art and things like that yeah, so I think, I mean, I think it all falls under the same umbrella of altered states. Now, mind-wandering is, again, something that I've been studying for a long time. But it's also, it's often used uh, uh, interchangeably with daydreaming, um, mm-hmm. although researchers make a distinction. But, um, yeah, it's a, it, even though it's something we engage in regularly, it does seem to be an altered state insofar as 
there isn't this one-to-one perception of reality. We're, we're in somewhat of a fantasy in our minds. And lucid dreaming, um, it's, it's, it's quite, I, I remember a friend of mine told me that he lucid dreamed when I was, when I was in my late teens or, or mid-teens. And it just, it just seemed, uh, well, I was just incredulous. I couldn't believe that that was actually, that you could have control over your dreams. He was talking about flying and, and, uh, and having full control over it as if he was, he was fully awake and that he could manifest any experience that he thought about. Um, and then when I was in grad studies, I met someone who's, who's now my best friend, um, who's an avid lucid dreamer and, and taught me his method, which, which by the way, is actually, um, quite unique or, or I mean, there are, there's a wild method, W I L D uh, a mild method, M I L D. These are acronyms. I forget exactly what they stand for, but for anyone interested, you can look online. There are YouTube videos that will guide you. Um, the, the way that I learned was, was, um, a bit different. Um, and, and really the idea is that we have lucid dreams when we're in uh, rapid eye movement sleep. So REM sleep, mm-hmm. which typically occurs later. Uh, you don't often have REM sleep right away as you're falling asleep. It tends to come later in the night um, as the sleep cycles progress. And so after about four hours, um, we wake naturally, whether we remember uh, or not is a different question, but, but we all seem to roughly four hours. It varies from person to person. And so what my, my friend told me uh, was when that happens, become aware of it. Try to set the intention before you go to bed to be aware of when you wake up. And then when you do, uh, get up for about 20 minutes, um, maybe maybe eat something high in glucose to provide fuel for the brain, whether that actually works, I don't know, or if it's a placebo. Um, don't take in any blue light, so you don't want to be on your cell phone or on your laptop or anything like that. Uh, he, he even went uh, so far as to put on red goggles, uh, which block out blue light. The reason is if, if blue light's hitting your, your retina, your eyeball, um, you, start, you stop producing melatonin, which helps you um, stay asleep. In any case, um, that really, you, you wake up after four hours, you get up for about 20 minutes, you go back to bed and you set the intention of being aware of the fact that you're, um, you're in a dream state. And, and for me, that was sufficient. Um, a couple of other things, I don't know if, I'm, if, if you want a lesson on this, but- Yeah, I do, this is so fascinating. <laughs> so, so one of the key ways that you do it is, is to engage in, in a reality check. And there are various different ways you can do that. The easiest, uh, because it's the laziest way, is to plug your nose uh, and see if you can breathe through it. Um, if you're if you're asleep, then uh, if you're actually dreaming, you can plug your nose, but you you will be able to breathe through it. Of course, if you're awake, you won't be able to. Um, and I remember my friend Andre said, you know, try that whenever you have the sensation that you're in a dream, um, just plug your nose and do your reality check and see if you can breathe through your nose. Other reality checks include looking at a digital clock, for example, uh, where what happens is it doesn't, it doesn't present the digits in a normal way. They get, they're kind of jittery. Um, another common one is to flip a light switch on and off. Um, and, and if you're in a dream state, then the light doesn't turn on and off. The reason I like the nose plugging one is, as I said, it's the lazy way out where if sometimes I'll plug my nose and I'll actually be awake and I didn't have to get up and flip the light switch sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget the first time because I was like, okay, there's, there's no way I'm asleep or dreaming right now, but my friend said, do this reality check. So I'm going to do the stupid thing and see what happens. And, and then I plugged my nose and I could breathe through my nose. And it was just this extreme aha moment. It was probably the briefest lucid dream I've ever had because I was so excited that it ended up yeah. waking. 
But as soon as I had that realization that I was in a dreamland, well, I, I astral projected out of my body. I flew through the wall in the apartment I was in and then over Waterloo, uh, which is where I was doing the, the city in which I was doing my master's and PhD. That was the first time I had this trip. And um, since then, I've, I've really um, gained a lot of control over it and could probably, <clears throat> I, get, I suppose, with like 80 to 85% accuracy, have a lucid dream if I set myself to it, if I set the intention the night before. Um, and it's just <clears throat> an incredible altered state where, and, and potentially one from which you could derive a lot of creative benefits because, you know, for example, there's this one um, place that, that, that I'll continuously go back to. And I set the intention to go there. I love it. It's a, it's a tree house in the middle of the woods. No one has, no one's around. Um, it's quite elevated and it's always sunny whenever I go there and you can, it, it's as if you're awake, you can feel the sun coming in through the window and warming your arm. I can smell the trees around me and the grass. And, and there's a little transistor radio in this lucid dream, a little old wooden radio that's always playing some sort of pleasant blues music. And as far as reaping the creative benefits, well, that music uh, is actually created by my own mind, right? Like I'm not actually in this place. Yeah. So you can use it to actually, in, and I've done this with paintings too, where I envision myself painting in lucid dreams or I envision myself, I, I play music as well. Uh, you know, I, I'll envision myself being the composer of the music and then I'll wake up and can remember the chords and can actually take, the, take what happened in this dream state and bring it to waking life. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we, we plan on doing some research along these lines. So far it's been experiments on myself, but it seems quite promising and, um, I've had some friends do it as well, and we're, we're developing some technology to allow for it. And it seems that it's it's really benefiting people where they can they can um, be creative in these states, uh, have very pleasant experiences, and then bring them back to, to waking life. That's so cool. Wait, how do you wake up at the four hour mark? Do you like set a tiny alarm? So that's one way to do it. I mean, as I said, typically we, we sleep by physically where we will wake up. Um, just naturally. Again, whether you remember or not is the question, but, but people tend to, and we tend to go through two of those cycles, like four-hour cycles, and we, of which there are many other cycles with slow-wave sleep and non-REM. But um, yeah, probably uh, around, I mean, on average, about four hours in. It varies for, for different people. And so you could you could do an alarm, or I would I would recommend starting by just when you're falling asleep, setting the intention to be aware of waking up and then just get up. And how that works scientifically is it blows my mind. Like I'm, you know, that, that you can set an intention, which, which really uh, allows some meta conscious part of your brain to monitor. Right. I, I don't know. Nobody knows how this works, which is quite fascinating, but there's, there's essentially you're setting up a monitor uh, so, so that it's like, okay, Paul, you woke up and it's, it's, so it's always doing a little bit of work throughout the night while we're unconscious sleeping. Uh, but then oftentimes that will allow you to, uh, become aware of the fact that you woke up. And then, as I said, get out of bed for 20 minutes. Um, another technique that works very well, um, for lucid dreaming, and it's definitely, uh, an orthodox technique, um, is for people who have sleep paralysis, which, um, can be a very terrifying experience. And some have posited that um, sleep paralysis is actually um, the origin of ideas about Satan and ghosts and, and, and evil spirits. Um, what happens in sleep paralysis typically is you wake up in your bed and you can't move. Um, and there is some 
this, this happens across cultures too, in, in some form or another, but I think there are four different types of experiences that are, that are commonly had, even with people who, have, who speak different languages, people who have never heard of this before. Um, one is a hag that's a, a, an old woman who sits on your chest and, and chokes you. Um, I've had gnarling beasts come into the room. Um, uh, I've had a, what, what looked like a friend of mine who turned into a ghoul or a demon and came flying at me. And it's, of course, terrifying because not only is there this terrifying creature in the room with you, but you can't move. Mm -hmm. um, in reality, you're not actually awake during sleep paralysis, and there is nothing wrong with this state. It's actually quite common. But again, I mean, you feel like you're awake. You're completely convinced you're awake. And so I'm not surprised that historically people may have thought, oh, my God, I was actually visited by a demon, you know? Yeah, and then turned into the dark side. It feels real as if that happened. Um, and so what happens is after, I don't know, it, it varies from person to person, but after what feels maybe like 30 seconds to a minute, all of a sudden you can move um, and, and the, the beasts are gone or the demon's gone. Um, at this point, most people are really quite relieved because it was a terrifying experience. For me, I welcome it, it, it for reasons I'll get into in a second. Um, but, but what's really happened, for me at least 100% of the time, is when I apparently wake up and can move, I'm still asleep. Um, oh. And so now, if, if any of the listeners have this experience, once you, once you feel like you've woken up and you can move, plug your nose and see if you can breathe through it. And, and if you can, now you've got this click, this reality check allows you to realize, oh my God, I'm still asleep. And once you, once that clicks in your sleeping, dreaming mind, you have complete control over your conscious state. Now you can fly, you can go through the wall and fly over the city. You can close your eyes and imagine being at the most beautiful beach, open your eyes and be there. I, I'll swim with dolphins, you know, just like anything that, that you can fathom, um, anything that you can imagine can become real. So, so yeah, I mean, I quite like sleep paralysis because, you know, I've, I've read up on the research on it. I have collaborators who, who are world experts on it. And as it turns out, there's nothing to actually be afraid of, neurologically speaking. Um, and, and for me, it's really just been a gateway into these lucid dreams. So now when I have sleep paralysis, I get quite excited. Uh, it's <laughs> like, oh, great, now I'm going to have a lucid dream. So, Wait, that's so funny. I have such a vivid memory from when I was little. Like, I even remember where I was. We, I, I mean, I don't know where, but I remember I was in a hotel with my family. And I have this memory of being asleep and I guess having a, like, sleep paralysis type of dream where a giant bird flew on my shoulder. And, like, I remember feeling it. And then I screamed bloody murder and then just went back to sleep afterwards. And the next... Well, you couldn't move when it flew on your shoulder? Or? Yeah, I couldn't move. And I just remember, like, screaming. And then my parents the next day were like, are you okay? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> because I, but I remember that so well. So I wonder if that, I should have just plucked my nose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, moving forward. I mean, this is the great thing, right? Is that um, it's it's not very well researched, these sleep states. But there, there does seem to be a, a lot of overlap in terms of, um, the different sleep states and and what's going on in the in the brain. I mean, there are quite a bit of differences, but um, essentially that we're in this state of free association where um, I mean, this dreams are so bizarre, right? It's and and um, and and even as we're falling asleep, we we go through hypnagogia, which is something that that I'm studying as well, um, which which I find fascinating, uh, where it's this, like, this similarly this state of of increased association of, of thoughts and ideas that you have. 
And according to lots of famous uh, inventors and artists, so uh, uh, Nikola Tesla, Edgar Allan Poe, uh, Salvador, Salvador Dali, um, Thomas Edison, they all swear that many of their great ideas, either for art or inventions, came from this weird state where they would have micro dreams, essentially, uh, right as you're falling asleep, which we, we go through hypnagogia every night. And they, would, they had various ways, different techniques that were quite similar, but that, that would allow them to wake up during this state and recall what they were thinking about, these crazy associative, hyper-associative dreams. Um, Edison, for example, would, would fall asleep in, a, in an armchair with a steel ball in his hand. And as he fell asleep, he would lose muscle flexion in his hand, so his hand would open up uh, gradually, and then eventually the steel ball would drop to the ground and it would wake him. And in the midst of these microgreens, and, and he swears, and as do the, the others that I mentioned, uh, that their greatest ideas came in this weird state. And so um, with, with a friend and, and colleague at MIT, we're, we're actually working on um, really trying to understand what's going on in this hypnagogic state and seeing whether we can um, help people to be more creative. Maybe we can help with clinical conditions, getting them to think differently while they're in this state. Rather than having a steel ball in hand, uh, they've at MIT built a glove that, that you put on before bed and you have a clenched fist and you lose muscle flexion in the same way as you fall asleep as, as Edison did with the steel ball. When that happens, it then signals your phone uh, and you've downloaded this app that now starts talking to you. So it, it, within your own voice. So in my case, I'd fall asleep and then my own voice would say, Paul, you're falling asleep. Why don't you think creatively about that painting that you want to do? Or why don't you think creatively about a piece of music you want to write? After about 60 to 90 seconds of being in this state, it then uh, uh, it wakes me up, there's an alarm that goes off, and then I can just spit out auditorily whatever I was thinking, and then it records it. It's really cool because uh, most of this research has, I've done on myself. Um, Adam Horowitz at MIT has done some research suggesting that, that it does increase creativity, getting people in this hypnagogic state. But what I find most wild is when I, when I use this on, on myself is that the next morning, uh, I'll re I, I won't have any recollection of having been awoken, shared my thoughts with my phone. And so sometimes it's just like kind of magical. You wake up and you've got ideas on your phone where it's like, holy shit, I don't remember. Yeah, it's like when you have a dream, you're like, oh, I wish I remembered like what I had done there. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the song that was playing or the, the piece of art I did or whatever. So, yeah, so again, altered states are just ge more generally um, my, my area of interest and in trying to harness them in some way to benefit us, whether through creativity or helping clinical conditions, helping provide meaning in life, uh, increasing intellectual humility, like, oh, crap, I don't actually know as much as I think. Uh, you know, again, I'm not religious, but I certainly, from having psychedelic experiences, don't claim to have a good grasp on our universe and what the hell is going on you know yeah. things are things are weird and and it really opens you up to to be humble i think and to um have nice shared experiences with other people where it's like we don't really know what's going on things are quite interesting and let's try to harness them and be happy and creative and yeah so i just love it that's so cool Hey guys, me really quick. I just wanted to talk about a couple of my amazing sponsors. The first being Sakara. Sakara is a company that delivers fresh, organic, perfectly portioned meals um, right to your home or your, you know, virtual office or wherever you are, so that you can get back to feeling really good again, both mentally, physically, etc. I feel like at the beginning of every year, you know, you're thinking about like how do I 
become my best self for 2021 or whatever. And a lot of that usually is around like eating well, um, whether it be for your like physical, you know, health or your mental well-being. And something I love about Sakara is like their philosophy is very like based on, it's very much based on like eating well so that you can feel what well in your brain, feel well in your body. Um, and they have a bunch of different programs, whether it's like their signature program or their 10 day reset. Um, and then they have a clean boutique where I get my probiotics and metabolism super powder. So I just highly recommend them. They really are about like feeding your like mind, body, and soul, which is super cool. So if you want 20% off your order, you can go to Sakara.com and then they use the code XOZOE at checkout. So again, that's Sakara.com. Code is XOZOE and you'll get 20% off your order. So I know we're short on time, so I'm going to end by wrapping up with a few really quick questions that I end every episode with. Okay. First question is, what's one thing in your life that's happened to you that's made you a stronger person today? Well, uh, on topic, uh, my last psychedelic trip. And uh, I mean, as you know, having had a panic attack on that trip, I then had a panic disorder for a number of years. And um, through meditation and um, exercise, I, I overcame it without, without any uh, substances additional like no, no knock on on you know people who use ssris or anything like that i think i think they're wonderful but overcoming um what was a f- very fearful experience and now seeing the beauty in it and wanting to better understand it um and and really promote it in, in a positive way so that people can reap the benefits do you believe everything happens for a reason oh i don't know uh it depends what one means by that i I dabble in determinism, uh, which which necessitates that we don't have free will, and so yeah, everything would happen for a reason, like dominoes falling. But I don't know. Uh, quantum mechanics suggests otherwise that there are random occurrences that might permit free will. It gets it's a hairy topic. I'm, yeah. I'll just say I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite quote or a mantra that you live by? Hmm. I don't know. I have so many favorite quotes. Probably my favorite is was, and it's it's not altogether inspiring, but I find it quite hilarious. Um, the quote is, uh, uh, "Either this wallpaper goes, or I do." And this, these were the final words of uh, uh, God, what's his name? Um, I can't believe this is not coming to me. The British playwright Shakespeare. Uh, he did the picture of Dorian Gray. Uh, one of my favorite books. I can do a quick Google search and find out. I should know this. Oscar Wilde. How... Oh, yeah. That sounds like an Oscar Wilde quote. How dare I forget his name. But yeah, that one I just always, you know, dealing with death and uh, he, he, him doing it with, with humor, either this wallpaper and an, an aesthetic, you know, ring to it. Either this wallpaper goes or I do. Uh, yeah. More, more generally, I don't know if there's a specific mantra, but I, I really do. Um, like the idea of, of humans getting along and, and being happy and encouraging each other and being creative together. Agreed. Yeah. What do you love most about yourself? Hmm. Probably um, my, my curiosity coupled with um, my ability to become obsessive about things. So 
um, I'm, I'm almost never bored. Um, even if I'm sitting alone, staring at a wall or in a doctor's office or waiting in line somewhere, um, I'm just curious about people, about consciousness, about my own consciousness, other people's, the universe. Um, and, and really, I mean, this is why this job is such a perfect fit for me where I get to scientifically explore this stuff for a living. So I think, yeah, I think my curiosity coupled with my ability to get obsessed about stuff and really dig in and try to figure out what's going on. When's your birthday, by the way? September 7th. I knew you'd be a Virgo. (laughs) (laughs) I think, is that Beyonce's birthday? I I don't know. From what I understand, it was the day on which Tupac was supposed to come back uh, seven years after. I don't know. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I had a feeling you'd be a Virgo Virgo, because every Virgo I've interviewed said curiosity was what they love most about themselves, which I thought was kind of cool. Do some research on that. see See if that's more common among Virgos. And yeah, it also might be like whenever I believe in astrology, then I think about Malcolm Gladwell and how like the hockey players all were born like the best hockey players were born on like a certain date. So yeah, that's- I digress. Oh no, she's September fourth. Sorry, um, but close enough. Close enough. And finally, last question is: How do you find solace in the city? And city can be whatever you want it to be. What What do you mean? It can be whatever I want it to be. Like you can either be a physical city like New York City or just, you know, in, in when the going to, gets tough, like, or in your dreams, you know, it could be literally anything. I see. I don't know if this quite answers the question, but I mean, I love I love the arts. So for mm-hmm. me, um, p- painting is my go to. I've got a, a little art studio in my garage and I'll just essentially uh, get back to a childlike state of mind and paint for hours and hours um, with, and, and time just flies by as I'm in this flow state. And it's just um, almost, almost similar to what one can experience from a very positive psychedelic experience where you're just, you, there's sort of this dissolution of ego and you're just an observe, an objective observer of, of what's being thrown on the canvas. And so for me, it's always, that's my therapy. That's, that's my meditation these days is to just paint. Did you paint that picture behind you? I did, yes. And along with a number of others that are hanging up here in stacks in the garage, yeah. It has like Picasso elements. Yeah, I've been told that before. <laughs> I like it. My my grandpa would always paint Picasso, but he would just like make copies. Um, but anyways, Paul, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm so excited that we were able to talk again. Feels like just yesterday we were in bunny suits and squirrel suits. Um, but for anyone listening, how can they support you, learn about your research, um, give to causes you care about? Yeah, good question. I mean, I'm, I, I don't like to ask for people to support me, I suppose, but, but I guess um, I'm, I'm always interested in finding like-minded people who have a similar sort of fascination in altered states, whether it's lucid dreaming or psychedelics and, and just chatting with people, including my own undergrads. Um, so, I mean, if anybody is interested and wants to learn more or has ideas for projects and wants to collaborate, uh, totally could just contact me. Um, yeah, Paul, paulcelai at gmail.com. Uh, shoot me an email and I'd be happy to chat and meet new people who are cool and have shared interests. Awesome. Well, thank you again and bye, everyone. <laughs>